Welcome back to the Still Mormon Podcast. I'm Jeremy, your host, and you're listening to the show that explores the proposition, what if Joseph Smith revealed, preached, and practiced a fundamentally different gospel than perhaps anything you've ever heard or considered. And ultimately, we here at the Still Mormon Podcast hope to give you reason to believe. Hello. Thanks for stopping by again. This is the second episode, the full, actually, full episode. Last one was a mini-sode. Um, this will be a little, little bit longer and more involved. Last time in the in the intro, I mentioned that in June of this year, 2019, I gave a talk about Joseph Smith and the subject of polygamy. Um, and I stated in the last episode that I stated rather emphatically that Joseph Smith's not a polygamist or wasn't a polygamist. And I should give a caveat to that. Uh, you cannot prove from the historical record that he was. I know that's audacious. I know that that is, um, that's something that people will just go crazy. I've heard them. I've heard many authors, historians just go crazy over that, that declaration However, I intend not to just say it, but to back it up with the historical record and to prove from the sources that what people are doing in relation to Joseph Smith is they are, they are slandering him. They are operating um, with gossip, hearsay, and by doing so, they're engaging, knowingly or not, in a character assassination of the man. And so I gave this talk at a restoration conference um, where a, a bunch of individuals from various branches of the restoration uh, from the different factions came together and, and they spoke about the restoration. And I spoke on polygamy. This talk is just a primer. It's only an introduction. It's an, it's an overview of the subject. It's not, it's not possible in the just about an hour that I spoke, it's not possible to address the subject completely. Um, I could only really just introduce it because this, this subject requires some intense unpacking in order to get at the truth because it's complex. I understand why people come to the conclusions that they do, that Joseph was, mind you, not just a polygamist, but a polyanderer, meaning he married other men's wives and a pedophile, okay? That's that's the notion that he was a pedophile. Uh, it, it wouldn't have been pedophilia, but it would have been statutory rape um, because these were young women. These were 14, 15, 16-year-old women supposedly that he married and had sexual relations with. That is the... That's the notion. By the way, there's disagreement on that within the church. There, Brian Hales, for example, doesn't doesn't agree with that. But the widespread notion is that he took all these wives, had sexual relations with some, if not all of them, and um, and they base that on what you'll discover in this talk. They base that on hearsay, not on evidence. And so I. I endeavor to lay out in this talk that basic premise. And this is just the beginning. That talk will be available, the complete transcript with all the footnotes on our website um, in short order. Um, and it's just the beginning of what will be a long conversation on this subject. And hopefully we'll be able to exhaust it. And by the end, my hope is that you'll be able to say, hmm, 
at very least, you'll say, yeah, I'm not sure anymore. And I think many of you, if not most of you, will, will say, oh, no, I think, I think he wasn't. At least you can't prove it. And so I hope you enjoy. Of Demigods and Dark Knights, an opening statement in defense of Joseph Smith. This is really humbling being here. What's been said today so far has been really helpful to me. And um, I hope I can say something that will be helpful to at least someone. And what I say is also not representative of the church that I have been a member of for 47 years. Um, I speak for myself. So, We adore our superheroes, whether to Iron Man or Wonder Woman. We offer billions upon billions of dollars and countless hours as sacrifices to these comic demigods. Impartial, I'm partial to the Dark Knight. Under that menacing bat suit with all those wonderful toys, he's just a human after all. He's... Uh, a billionaire crime-fighting tech savant, but he gets angry, lonely, haunted by his past. I'm not alone in preferring heroes that are more human than super, with enough blemishes to make me feel better about myself. When we learn that Gandhi was quite the racist, when we hear allegations that Martin Luther King Jr. had 40 mistresses, possibly laughed while watching a woman get raped, we struggle to reconcile these horrific reports with the lofty rhetoric and noble acts of nonviolent resistance. When Bill Cosby gets convicted of sexual assault, when the king of pop is accused of molestation, we cringe, shake our heads, wonder if we'll actually never watch another delightful episode of The Cosby Show or moonwalk awkwardly all alone to Billie Jean. But we're no longer surprised, sadly. We've come to expect no more in this age of Deadpoolian anti-heroes. There are no true men of steel anymore, if there ever were to begin with. Unless, of course, you believe the scriptures revealed by Joseph Smith. Joseph's revelations speak of a different order of heroes upon whose legends and archetypes the Egyptian, Greek, and Norse demigods would eventually be drawn. Individuals who entered this holy order anciently were inducted in by the Lord God himself and were given a portion of God's power over his creation. These were the Lord's anointed. Joseph Smith revealed that these ancients, including Adam, Noah, and Abraham, were given by God quoting from Joseph's translation of the Bible, Genesis 14, in the LDS version. Power by faith to break mountains, to divide the seas, to dry up waters, to turn them out of their course, to put at defiance the armies of nations, to divide the earth, to break every band, to stand in the presence of God, to do all things according to his will, according to his command, subdue principalities and powers, and this by the will of the Son of God, which was from before the foundation of the world. Thus, we have a few incredible tales of Enoch moving mountains, Moses dividing seas, Elijah calling down fire from heaven, the stuff of demigods indeed, and yet the number of demonstrations of this supernatural prowess by these holy men is it's far smaller than the minuscule number of individuals who actually possessed God's power. Of the estimated 108 billion humans who've inhabited this world, there are only dozens of named individuals in all of scripture whoever were members of the Holy Order. And though they could, if God willed it, do greater supernatural feats than any Avenger, the primary signs identifying anyone of the Holy Order come not in metaphysical displays, but rather in the form of words, what they revealed, what they taught, and in demonstrations of how they served and sacrificed. The words and examples of Isaiah, Paul, King Benjamin come to mind. Speaking of the Holy Order, Joseph taught... Quote, it is after the order of the Son of God, the channel through which the Almighty commenced revealing his glory at the beginning of the creation of the earth, and through which 
He has continued to reveal himself to the children of men to the present time and will make known his purposes to the end of time. So what kind of person would God trust with this channel, with his words, let alone his power? What kind of man would God call and elect into this order? Would he trust a murderer? Would he reveal himself to a thief? Would he confer his power on an adulterer? Would he anoint a liar? Unfortunately, anyone with the slightest understanding of the historical record who also hopes to stay in the boat of institutional Mormonism is forced to believe that God indeed does love liars. Why? Because on May 26, 1844, in front of a large gathering of the saints, Joseph, one who claimed to have been a member of the Holy Order, stood, having been accused of practicing spiritual wifery, and made a lengthy and vigorous defense of himself, saying, What a thing it is for a man to be accused of committing adultery and having seven wives when I can find only one. The whole speech is well worth reading. Joseph denied the practice and doctrine of polygamy vociferously in the strongest possible language. There is not a single instance of Joseph advocating polygamy. On the contrary, all of his recorded public and private statements denounced it. Arguably, in the last three years of his life, Joseph spent more time and effort trying to eradicate the practice of spiritual wifery and polygamy than he did on almost anything else, save preparing the saints for the temple. The times and seasons are full of his repudiation of the practice. The Nauvoo High Council minutes reveal his constant efforts to excommunicate instances of spiritual wifery, uh, any instances of spiritual wifery and polygamy. Interesting behavior for one who reportedly married between 20 and 50 women. Of Joseph's May 26, 1844 denial his, and his many public and private actions, Joseph's grandson, RLDS patriarch Albert A. Smith, perhaps said it best. There's no halfway ground. Either Joseph Smith was true and clean, open and above board, as the reorganized church claims, or else he was a hypocrite and a fraud through and through, as his enemies claim. This is the quandary that all believers in the Restoration face. It's the fundamental question of Mormonism. Did Joseph Smith tell the truth? I confess that for many years, I believed Joseph was a liar when I taught and defended what I understood was his practice of polygamy. I tacitly believed that God himself countenanced and even commanded Joseph to lie. I hadn't yet done the difficult work to reconcile Joseph's alleged polygamy with what he revealed and taught on truth. Joseph said, quote, quote, truth is Mormonism. God is the author of it. And, quote, one of the grand fundamental principles of Mormonism is to receive truth, let it come from where it may. Joseph revealed many scriptures on the subject of truth, including these words, for the word of the Lord is truth, and whatsoever is truth is light, and whatsoever is light is spirit, even the spirit of Jesus Christ. And these words from the brother of Jared, Yea, Lord, I know that thou speakest the truth, for thou art a God of truth, and canst not lie. Of liars, Joseph's words offer only the strongest condemnation. Among those many revelations are the following, Woe unto the liar, for he shall be thrust down to hell, and wherefore I, the Lord, have said that the fearful and the unbelieving and all liars, and whosoever loveth and maketh a lie, and the whoremonger and the sorcerer shall have their part in that lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Joseph left himself no wiggle room whatsoever in those words, and yet I still allowed the contradiction to persist. However, as I've looked more carefully at more of the, the available historical record, 
I've come to the conclusion it's impossible to square Joseph's revelations, his recorded words and actions, with the allegation that he practiced polygamy. The notion that he was a polygamist is wholly incongruent with Joseph also being a virtuous man. If he did as accused, he was also a rank adulterer because he supposedly married single women like Fanny Alger and then sent her away to marry another man with whom she bore nine children. He supposedly put away Sarah and Whitney and arranged for her to marry Joseph C. Kingsbury while Joseph was still alive. She would later marry Heber C. Kimball, bearing him seven children. Joseph allegedly married other men's wives without their having been widowed or divorced. How is any of that consistent with the Lord's own condemnation of divorce? How is it consistent with the allegation, with the alleged revelation on plural marriage? If Joseph did as accused, then he also flatly disobeyed the revelation he purportedly received. In section 132 of the LDS Doctrine and Covenants, you find no permission to marry other men's wives or to divorce or put away any existing wives. Though some apologists try, it is even very difficult to find cultural and religious exemption for Joseph to marry and have sex with 14, 15, 16-year-old girls, which is the allegation. Joseph supposedly attempted to hide many of the rumored marriages from Emma. How does that comport with the law of Sarah? That would give Emma the right to choose the wives and sanction the marriages. I completely understand why so many people lose faith in the Restoration. Without exposure to more facts and available exculpatory evidence, it's far easier and, frankly, far more intellectually and spiritually consistent to abandon Joseph altogether than to attempt to reconcile these tremendous contradictions. However, the closer I look at the record and at Joseph's works and words, I find no evidence that he did as accused. And though both apologists and antagonists alike scoff at such a notion, the historical record simply cannot convict him. Today, I believe more than ever that Joseph was the Lord's anointed, a member of the Holy Order, and that he told the truth. I believe it to be a serious offense to speak evil of the Lord's anointed. I have in the past spoken evil of Joseph, and I will no longer do so. As a current active LDS gospel doctrine teacher, and as the great-great-great-grandson of eight polygamous men, including LDS apostle Erastus Snow, who had at least 16 wives, I'm giving this talk as an act of public repentance. The lies, distortions, misunderstandings, and the practice and of and belief in polygamy passed down by my ancestors will end with me. I offer these words, pardon me. <clears throat> See, this is the LDS tradition of weeping at every time, every time you speak. <laughs> I offer these words as a testimony to my family that I will stand as an advocate for Joseph Smith and his character. Joseph spoke in the, in the Nauvoo Grove on May 29, 1842 and pled for the saints to defend him. He said, quote, let all who will support the character of the prophet, the Lord's anointed. If all who go will support my character, I prophesy in the name of the Lord Jesus, whose servant I am, that you will prosper in your missions. I hope to merit the promise of that prophecy. When examining Mormon history, we would do well to consider the following. Historical consensus is often dead wrong. Contrary to popular belief, Christopher Columbus didn't discover America. There were no witches burned at the stake in the Salem witch trials. George Washington didn't chop down a cherry tree or have wooden teeth. Van Gogh didn't cut his ear off, and Thomas Edison didn't actually invent the light bulb. Scientists now say that the Americans didn't come across the Bering Land Bridge first, and DNA testing did not actually prove that Thomas Jefferson 
was the father of any of, Sal uh, any of Sally Hemings' children. History relies on reports and recollections, and humans are often bad at both. Memory science tells us memories are highly susceptible to degradation and outside suggestion, even when a record of the event is made immediately after. They're called flashbulb events. They've done studies of that with 9-11. They're fascinating. Collective false memories, a very real phenomenon, are given the name the Mandela Effect because large numbers of people worldwide have this memory seared into their minds that Nelson Mandela died in the 1980s while in prison, except he didn't. He died a free man in 2013. False accusations and the too frequent occurrence of false confessions leading to wrongful convictions are also both highly relevant to Mormon history. Each of these points merits a lengthy discussion. We ought to be humble and cautious when pronouncing any certainties about history. The primary narrative of Mormon history that's accepted by both the institutional apologists and the critics have been derived from two main sources, Joseph's contemporary enemies and the decades after the fact recollections of Utah polygamists or Brighamites. But there's a competing and arguably far more compelling narrative that has largely been ignored. Both apologists and antagonists dismiss that story because on the one hand, it doesn't support the institutional claims to continuity of authority, and on the other hand, doesn't lend credence to the claim that Joseph was a fraud. It is beyond the scope of this talk to give adequate time to all the points of the case that the apologists and critics are reluctant or refuse to discuss. The, that effort will be done in an upcoming podcast later this year. Here's a summary of what I believe should be considered, at least. There's no universal agreement among historians or authors on who exactly were Joseph's wives. The number ranges from the low 20s to over 50. There's no record of Joseph saying anything on the subject of polygamy except to preach against it, proclaim his innocence, and excommunicate any who were preaching or practicing it. Joseph simply can't be connected to the purported revelation on plural marriage. All that exists is a copy of a copy of the revelation in the hand of Joseph C. Kingsbury, not one of Joseph's scribes. William Clayton's original apparently was destroyed. There's no way to verify if the stories of the revelation are even true. Mormon historians attribute to both Joseph and Emma actions and attributes for which the only corroboration are, again, statements by Joseph's enemies or belated tales by Utah polygamists. These include unfounded assertions that Joseph attempted to hide his activities from Emma, that Emma tried to prevent Joseph from living polygamy. They also include merciless slanders on Emma's character that have no basis in fact. She was accused by Brigham Young and other things, uh, and others among many things, of burning the original uh, polygamy revelation, pushing Eliza Snow down a flight of stairs, causing her to miscarry, and even trying to murder Joseph by poisoning. But Emma remained consistent to her dying day that Joseph was innocent. She remains the greatest character witness in the defense of Joseph. Mormonism is replete with tall tales that have no basis in fact, and many of them have ties to polygamy and Joseph. Brigham standing on a stage, transforming into him for one. Another astonishing exculpatory incident occurred in 1842 when lawyer Chauncey L. Higby used Joseph's name to seduce women into practicing spiritual wifery. Immediately, Joseph brought Chauncey before the Nauvoo High Council and had him excommunicated. But Joseph also took the dr dramatic step of suing Chauncey in open court in Nauvoo in October of that year. Before Justice of the Peace Ebenezer Robinson, Brigham Young's brother-in-law, and later in the Hancock County Circuit Court at the county seat at Carthage, the case was called the People versus Chauncey Higby. 
The trial was ultimately dismissed because Joseph was forced into hiding by the false accusations of John C. Bennett, inciting the Missouri extradition order of Joseph and Oren Rockwell. Now, Joseph's lawsuit begs the question, why would a guilty man put himself to such public scrutiny? Polygamy was a crime in the state of Illinois. All it would have required for Chauncey to prevail would be to find one disgruntled father, sister, friend, neighbor, any of, the purport, of any of the purported 17 wives that Joseph is alleged to have had by October of 1842? Why would Joseph take such a risk unless he were innocent? Perhaps the greatest evidence of Joseph's innocence is his character. What, pe what people said of him, what he said of others. His writings are full of the most generous, lofty, loving language toward his family and friends. And many people who knew him spoke and wrote of Joseph in the most respectful and admiring words. All of this having been said, Joseph's relationship to polygamy, like pretty much everything else in life, comes down to sex. Period. Did he or did he not have carnal relations with any other women besides Emma? If Joseph did not have sex with the women, regardless of what else may have transpired, it wasn't polygamy. There does not exist a single contemporaneous source to establish proof of sexual relations between Joseph and anyone other than Emma. As Brian Hales, author of Joseph Smith's Polygamy and foremost compiler of pro-Joseph Smith polygamy sourcing, rightly explains, none of these women left a specific record of how Joseph explained the principle of plural marriage to them, the specific path they followed to come to an acceptance of the principle, or what exactly it meant to them in terms of their daily lives and activities. The greatest evidence of sexual relations, of course, would be children. However, despite exhaustive efforts that began in the mid-1800s and have continued up until today, though many children were claimed, no children have been verified. Recent DNA testing has proven previous claims to be false. After explaining that the prophet was virile, having fathered nine children with Emma despite long periods of time apart and challenging schedules, and that most of the alleged wives were quite fertile, Hales concedes, no children are known to have been born to Joseph and his plural wives. Darn. Still, Hale's attempts to establish the evidence for sexual relations between Joseph and his wives with this remarkably equivocal language. Documenting sexual relations can be difficult, but it appears the prophet experienced sexual relations with less than half of the women sealed to him. Since Hale's and other authors concede the possibility that Joseph had some wives with whom there were no sexual relations, it's perplexing, if not surprising, that they entirely dismiss the idea that Joseph possibly had no sexual relations with any of the women. Without being able to rely on any polygamous posterity linked to Joseph, Hales provides what he deems evidence of sexual relations for 11 of the women. For the rest, he asserts there is little or no evidence of sexuality. For two of the women, he says the evidence is weak. Why he lists them, I don't know, but he lists them. He claims that there is moderate evidence for carnal relations with six others. However, Hales relies entirely on decades-old second and third party hearsay, much from two polygamous men, from Brighamite polygamists whose motivations Hales does not examine or acknowledge. In the case of Maria Lawrence, Hales relies on William Law, who accused Joseph of being in an open state of adultery for which no proof at the time was ever proffered. Hales provides no first-hand accounts to establish what he calls evidence for this group of women. For three of the women, and this is where the whole dang thing rests, frankly, Hales claims the evidence is strong. The primary source of evidence comes from the 1892 Templot case, affidavits provided by Lucy Walker Kimball, Melissa Lott Willis, and Emily Partridge Dow Young. 
Nine of the supposed wives were living at the time, yet only three would provide testimony. Curious. Brian Hales writes, in the Temple Lot suit, Lucy Walker admitted to conjugal relations with Joseph Smith. Thank you, sir. However, the transcript reveals that Lucy simply declines to answer any direct questions rather than admit to any sexual relations or children. In 1885, Joseph Smith III visited with Melissa Lott and her two sisters in Lehigh, Utah. In his memoir, Joseph describes a touching scene with these women who had been his childhood friends during their time in Nauvoo. He recounts their expressing deep affection and regard for his mother and father. He had a lengthy interview with Melissa about her relationship with his father, the prophet, when he asked, did you ever live with him as, as his wife anywhere? She said, beginning to cry. No, I never did. But you have no business asking me such questions. I had great regard and respect for both your father and your mother. I do not like to talk, talk about such things. Joseph concluded the following about Melissa's relationship with her father. Quote, the, the interview had convinced me that the statement made in an affidavit of this Melissa Lot Willis, pub, published by Joseph F. Smith, along with others of similar import, to the effect that she had been married to Joseph Smith was not true. Provided the word married being construed as conveying the right of living together as man and wife, uh, a relation she had unequivocally denied in my presence. I was convinced that wherever the word married or sealed, and consequently the language in the affidavits and every one of them is the such and such was married or sealed. Such and such was married or sealed. It's quite a legalistic term. Where the word married or sealed occurred in such testimonials regarding my father, it meant nothing more than that possibly these women had gone through some ceremony or covenant which they intended as an arrangement for association in the world to come and could by no means have any reference whatever to marital rights in the flesh. In 1892, in her affidavit for the Templot case, Melissa changes her story. Though not admitting explicitly to sexual relations, she answered that she had, quote, roomed with Joseph Smith as his wife, quote, more than twice in Nauvoo. In 1893, Joseph Smith III returned to Utah to interview Melissa. Joseph asked her, were you married to my father? She replied, yes, he asked. Was you a wife in very deed? She answered, yes. He asked, why was there no in case, in, increase, say in your case? She said, through no fault of either of us, lack of proper conditions on my part probably, or it might be in the wisdom of the Almighty that we should have none. The prophet was martyred nine months after our marriage. We're left to decide when she was telling the truth. The final evidence and the only direct admission of sexuality comes from Emily Dow Partridge, young, who had born nine children, nine, I believe, to Brigham Young, in her 1892 Temple Lot case affidavit. After a series of conflicting answers related to her relations with Joseph Smith, a lawyer asked Emily, did you have carnal intercourse with Joseph Smith? She answered, yes, sir. How many nights? I could not tell you. Do you make the declaration you ever slept with him but one night? Yes, sir. And that was the only time and place that you ever went to bed with him? No, sir. Oddly enough, the Temple Lot affidavit was the very first time she'd mentioned such a thing for which we have any record. She makes no mention of a living husband, uh, living as husband and wife with Joseph in her 1877 memoirs or anywhere else. Interestingly, she tells of being married to, married to Joseph twice. The first time, she remarks that she went home by herself right after the ceremony, calling it odd. 
The second time she said she had the blessing of Emma, but that Emma watched her and her sister Eliza afterward like a hawk, never leaving her alone with Joseph. Emma, she says, would soon send both of them away, requesting Joseph make them uh, divorce them. The judge in the Temple Lot case, Judge John F. Phillips, found these women to be less than truthful. In his decision, he stated, quote, it's perhaps, it perhaps would be uncharitable to say of these women that they have borne false testimony as to their connection with Joseph Smith, but in view of all the evidence and circumstances surrounding the alleged intercourse, it's difficult to escape the conclusion that at most they were but sports in nest hiding. Lying for the Lord is a well-known idiom in connection with Brighamite Mormonism and ought to be weighed into any consideration of the veracity of any reports coming from that people. It should be recognized that this concept has no verifiable connection to Joseph Smith. He never countenanced lying, but always advocated honesty and truth. Historian D. Michael Quinn points out that in late 19th century Mormonism, Arguments were published in the Deseret Evening News and in B.H. Roberts' biography of John Taylor, quote, that if apostles, and by implication any Latter-day Saints, were under a divine command or covenant of secrecy, which one of the apostles violated by telling others, that those who maintained the sacred covenant of secrecy would be justified in, even obligated to, denouncing the disclosures as false. In October 1844, in response to Signe Rigdon's direct accusations, Quote, that the Twelve and their adherents have endeavored to carry on this spiritual wife business in secret. LDS Apostle John Taylor made a fierce public denial in, time, in the times and seasons, although he had already begun taking plural wives at that point. While in France in 1850, Taylor, in a public debate over polygamy accusations, gave a lengthy denial, stating emphatically in part, quote, I proved Mr. Caswell to have told one lie, and a man that will tell one falsehood to injure, injure an innocent people will tell 500 if necessary for the same object. We are accused of here of polygamy and actions the most indelicate, obscene, and disgusting, such that none but a corrupt and depraved heart could have contrived. I shall content myself by reading our views of chastity and marriage from a work published by us containing some of the articles of our faith, doctrine, and covenants. He then reads from what was section 101, the article on marriage. Taylor had as many as 15 wives at the time. In 1864, Taylor admitted why he had lied while in France to RLDS Apostle E.C. Briggs, explaining that he had made a, quote, prudential statement. For if he had owned himself as a polygamist, which he was at the time, he would have been driven out of France and so cut off his usefulness in that country. What? Mr. Taylor, tell a lie? Said E.C. Briggs. Yes, said the former. Under the circumstances, it was justifiable. In 1848, Catherine Lewis, a convert to the church, published a narrative of some of the proceedings of the Mormons. In her expose, she recounts her introduction to Mormonism and in particular her introduction to polygamy. She describes first hearing of the plurality of wives taught by an unnamed Mormon elder in 1843 in Boston. The teachings were accompanied by the elder cautioning her to, quote, not to tell this conversation. Miss Lewis goes on to describe that she was then recruited by Augusta Adams Cobb, Brigham Young's second plural wife, who encouraged Catherine to accept, quote, the word of the Lord and, quote, receive her full endowment and marry Heber C. Kimball, Brigham Young, or one of several other authorities in the church. Catherine refused. Mrs. Cobb warned her to keep their communications secret, quote, if you tell anyone that I've told you these things, I will deny it and throw the lie on you. 
Catherine says, this I thought was a jest at first, but I soon learned that they were commanded to lie if they were exposed, and they seek any opportunity when no other person is present to teach this doctrine, which, if divulged, they must deny. There are many unresolved contradictions concerning when the revelation on plural marriage was received. In her Templot affidavit, Emily Partridge Dow Young tells that she learned of the plural, of the plural marriage revelation in March of 1843, and when the lawyer asked her to explain how she was married to Joseph Smith in March when the revelation wasn't given until July 1843, she replied, quote, well, I don't know anything about that. Lucy Walker, in her Temple Lot affidavit, gave different dates, at first saying it was revealed, revealed in 1831, although she hadn't met Joseph until spring of 1841. She corrected her statement saying, quote, I saw that revelation at our house in Nauvoo in 1842. It was in writing. I mean, it was not written to present to the church. It was written later on than that. Of course, it was written when I saw it in 1842. That is, it was in manuscript. Of course, I am sure it was the one on plural marriage, just as positive of that, uh, I am of that of anything else I've sworn to. There's no doubt about it at all. Brigham Young, Heber C. Kimball, and William Clayton all give differing accounts of how and when the revelation came forward. When examining the motives of the Brighamites in the context of any of their statements or actions, an important consideration is the concept of kingship and queenship. While governor of Utah, Brigham had himself anointed a, quote, king, priest, and ruler over Israel. He declared in a general conference in 1851, quote, all things will have to bow to Mormonism or eternal light and truth. We have the true government of all the earth. Brigham Young, Heber C. Kimball, and the rest of the leaders and fully endowed members of Mormonism considered themselves kings and priests under the Most High God and that their earthly kingdom would literally subdue all other kingdoms on the earth. Heber Kimball even referred to Brigham once as his savior. Their wives were anointed queens and priestesses under the Most High God. Through receiving their endowments and especially their second anointing, they all had their callings and elections made sure, they were pronounced gods and goddesses on the earth, were promised eternal life, and were told there was no sin they could commit that would derail their exaltation, save the shedding of innocent blood or the sin against the Holy Ghost. Another important consideration is the fact that after Joseph died, a systematic effort was undertaken by Brigham Young to revise the official history of the church. That's a common practice among many dictators. He admitted on April 1st, 1845, quote, I commenced revising the history of the church, of the history of Joseph Smith at Brother Richard's office. Elder Heber C. Kimball and George A. Smith were with me. In October of 1845, William Smith reported in the Warsaw Signal, quote, that Brigham Young, John Taylor, and Willard Richards with the appointed bishops have assumed the publishing of the church documents, the Book of Covenants, and also Joseph's private history as their own property, entirely regardless of the rights of the Smith family as therewith connected. Richard Van Wagner has further shown the extensive nature of the historical revisions made by Brigham Young, quoting Richard, that this revision or censorship of the official history came from Brigham Young, is evidenced by an 11 July 1856 reference in Wilford Woodruff's diary. Apostle Woodruff, working in the church historian's office, questioned Young respecting a, quote, piece of history on book E1, page 1681-2, concerning Hiram leading this church and tracing the Aaronic priesthood. Young advised, quote, it was not essential to be insert inserted in the history and had better be omitted. 
Years later, Elder Charles W. Penrose, a member of the First Presidency, admitted that after Joseph's death, some changes were made in the official record for, quote, prudential reasons. Charles Wesley Wandell, an assistant church historian, was aghast at these emendations. Commenting on the many changes made in the historical work as it was being serialized in the Deseret News, Wandell noted in his diary, quote, I noticed the interpolations because having been employed in the historian's office at Nauvoo by Dr. Richards and employed too in 1845, in compiling this very autobiography, I know that after Joseph's death, his memoir was doctored to suit the new order of things, and this too by the direct order of Brigham Young to Dr. Richards and systematically by Richards. The Quorum of the Twelve under Brigham Young's leadership began altering the historical record shortly after Smith's death. Contrary to the introduction's claim, Smith did not author the history of the church. It should be noted that the brand of polygamy practiced by Brigham Young and his followers extended well beyond the bounds of the purported revelation. According to John D. Lee, it included the exchange of wives. Quote, in the winter of 1845, meetings were held all over the city of Nauvoo, and the spirit of Elijah was taught in the different families as a foundation to the order of celestial marriage, as well as the law of adoption. Some have mutually agreed to exchange wives and have been sealed to each other as husband and wife by virtue of the authority of the holy priesthood. One of Brigham's brothers, Lorenzo Young, now a bishop, made an exchange of wives with Mr. Isaac Decker. They both seemed happy in the exchange of wives. In October 1861 General Conference, Brigham Young taught that women could leave faithful husbands without divorcing them if they could find a man with higher priesthood authority who could take them. Brigham practiced this and had children with some of the women who followed his counsel. Other than the word of Brigham and other Brighamites, this astonishing doctrine has no verifiable connection to Joseph Smith. Neither do the doctrines of Adam God, denying priesthood to those of African descent or blood atonement. Brigham taught openly and often that, quote, it is the greatest blessing that could come to some men to shed their blood on the ground and let it come up before the Lord as an atonement. Many in Nauvoo reported threats of violence. In 1845, William Smith reported he was cautioned by one of the Nauvoo police to, quote, look out for my life. Catherine Lewis reported that when she met Brigham Young that he carried two pistols on his hip that he named, quote, the defense of the gospel or the preparation of the gospel of peace. When she refused to marry Heber or Brigham, she felt she had to flee Nauvoo and stated later, quote, it is my firm opinion, had they known my exact departure, means would have been used to waylay or otherwise maltreat me in order to prevent my escape. William Smith also stated in 1857, quote, I have good reason for believing that my brother Samuel H. Smith died of poisoning in Nauvoo, administered by order of Brigham Young and Willard Richards, only a few weeks subsequent to the unlawful murders of my other brothers, Joseph and Hiram, while incarcerated in Carthage jail. Several other persons who were presumed to stand between Brigham Young and the accomplishment of his ambitions and wicked designs mysteriously disappeared from Nauvoo about the same time and have never been heard from since, end quote. Samuel Smith's wife, Levira, and daughter Mary also believed and stated that Samuel was murdered by poisoning. The murder of Arvine Hodge outside of Brigham Young's home in 1845 and the persistent menacing presence of the Whittling and Whistling Brigade patrolling the streets of Nauvoo while openly brandishing their Bowie knives all added to many feeling afraid for their safety while at Nauvoo. The massacre, I'm understating the case, by the way. The massacre by Utah Mormons at Mountain Meadows of over 120 men, women, and children and other subsequent killings were the full manifestation 
of the culture of blood atonement taught by Brigham Young. Given the volume of well-documented lies among the Brighamites, the pervasive culture of violence, the aberrant sexual practices that went well beyond polygamy, and the other innovative doctrines promulgated by Brigham Young and his followers, ought we not examine with greater scrutiny the decades-old Brighamite recollections that claim polygamy originated with Joseph Smith? As to how polygamy actually began, there's far greater evidence that it was introduced by Brigham Young, Heber C. Kimball, and other members of the Twelve. Here is what we know from the historical record. While on missions to the eastern states, Brigham Young and others of the apostles spent considerable time among members of a sect known as the Cochranites, which had congregations in Saco, Maine. This is just dismissed by people, but it's true. They were in Saco, Maine, Boston, and New York. The Cochranites were well known for practicing spiritual wifery, open sexuality, the exchange of wives, washing of the feet, and, and strict oaths of secrecy. The Mormon apostles, starting with Orson Hyde and Samuel Smith in 1832, made many converts among the Cochranites, enough to hold general conferences in Saco, Maine in 1835 and 1836. Brigham Young was in attendance at these conferences. Brigham would later take as his second plural wife in November of 1843 a former Cochranite woman named Augusta Adams Cobb, the same woman who would later attempt to recruit Catherine Lewis into polygamy. At the time of her marriage to Brigham, Augusta was still married to her husband, Henry Cobb. How much a part, of, how much a part Cochranism played on Brigham's particular brand of spiritual wifery is impossible to say. However, the, co the connections and similarities should at least be acknowledged. Brigham would tell, a slightly, would tell slightly different stories of how he learned of the doctrine of plural marriage. Interestingly, Brigham admits he didn't learn it from Joseph. In June of 1865, Brigham had a conversation with soon-to-be U.S. Vice President Schuler Colfax, who reported Brigham brought up the subject of polygamy and stated, quote, The revelations of the doctrine and covenants declared for monogamy, but that polygamy was a later revelation commanded by God to him, Brigham and a few others, and permitted and advised to the rest of the church. In July 1869, both the New York Times and the Chicago Tribune reported that Brigham said, quote, until we came to Utah, the subject of polygamy was not broached. It was not until we had a revelation on the subject. Also in 1869, the New York Times reported Brigham stating, quote, as to our institutions, we know we are right, and polygamy, which you ob object to, was not originally part of our system, but was adopted by us as a necessity after we came to Utah. In 1874, Brigham told the Deseret News another version of the story. While we were in England in 1839 or 1840, I think, the Lord manifested to me by vision and his spirit things concerning polygamy that I did not then understand. I never opened my mouth to anyone concerning them until I returned to Nauvoo. Joseph had never mentioned this, and there, have never been, there had never been a thought of it in the church that I ever knew anything about at that time, but I had this for myself and I kept it to myself. Brigham would then change his story again, later stating that the revelation first came to Joseph in 1829, although how would Brigham know since he wasn't baptized till 1832. Evidence that Brigham and others did indeed know of polygamy or spiritual wifery while in England comes from a number of peculiar entries in the journal of William Clayton. Clayton was married to Ruth Moon in 1836, then baptized into the church by Heber C. Kimball in 1837. In 1840, Brigham had joined the England mission. William records the following in his journal. Keep in mind, at this time he's married to Ruth. On April 6, 1840, got home at 11 o'clock, S with S and R. They gave me a pint of porter. 
Sarah washed my feet. The rest of the entry is scratched out. On April 9, 1840, she gave me a glass of porter. I got to M about 11 o'clock, nearly through. Sarah had some egg milk ready. She washed my feet, and I then went to bed. The rest is redacted. On April 22, 1840, Sarah Crooks went with me, preached at Worsley. We got home about 1 o'clock, took S with H. Walker. Sis Poole washed my feet. S. Crooks gave me an orange. The rest is redacted. The pattern repeats for four more entries, with the end of each entry again having been redacted. In the multiple entries, he's meeting with at least two women. It's impossible to tell exactly what's going on. However, none of the women Clayton is spending time with alone at odd hours, often at night while sharing alcohol, is his wife, Ruth. Sarah Crooks is the primary woman mentioned, a woman William later writes about in his journal expressing a desire for her, a story he concocts, I believe he concocts, about having a conversation with Joseph Smith, okay, if you know the conversation as well, where Joseph says, oh, you can have as many wives as you want, as many as you want, here, I'll pay for her to come over, go get my checkbook. Sarah Crooks is the primary woman mentioned, a woman William later writes about in his journal expressing his desire for her and still later would attempt unsuccessfully to make his plural wife. The practice of washing feet, an established Cochranite practice, happens night after night. The redactions after each entry are peculiar and certainly are in keeping with the Cochranite and later Mormon secrecy oaths made in connection with polygamy. We'll never know what happened with William and these women, but the odd nature of these journal entries and their connection with Cochranism should be noted. In 1877, former secretary to Brigham Young, Mark Forskett, who had left the Utah Mormons in fear for his life, visited Emma Smith Bitterman in Nauvoo. He recorded in his diary that Emma told him that Joseph had said to her, quote, I would pity the people that should follow Brigham as a leader, and that, quote, Brigham would lead the saints to hell. She also related that after Brigham came into power in Nauvoo, she had confronted him about his teaching of spiritual wifery, which he denied. She said to him, quote, Why, Brigham, you need not talk like that. You know these things are done. It is so plain that even a stranger cannot come and walk through our streets without witnessing it. You know, too, that Joseph in my presence told you that you had been teaching such things while he was alive and that he commanded you in the name of the Lord to teach them no more or judgments would overtake you. In 1845, William Smith published a scathing expose, a proclamation, on the practice of polygamy in Nauvoo, laying the blame for the plural wife system at the feet of Brigham and the Twelve. In 1879, William published in the Saints' Herald the following remarkable account, quote, In relating her report, Emma said that some complaint had been made to her by females whom she'd visited that John Taylor, Willard Richards, and Brigham Young had been teaching some doctrines among the saints privately that was going to ruin the church unless there was a stop put to it, as it was contrary to the law and rules governing the church. Joseph remarked that he would attend to the matter as soon as he got through with his troubles with the laws and fosters. But mark you, their conversation took place only a few days previous to your father's death. One other point I wish to notice, he's still speaking. I was eating at Joseph's table, and that was as the conversation turned upon Brigham Young, Joseph remarked that with regard to the charges brought against these brethren, that he expected that he would have trouble with Brigham Young especially, and added that should the time ever come that this man be young should lead the church, he would lead it to hell. 
there were reports that Brigham Young was committing adultery while in England in 1840. English convert to the church and later RLDS 70, Thomas Stafford, was in England during Brigham's first mission there. He reported the following in 1891. Okay, parenthetically, this is in 1891. It's a recollection, just like all the other dang reports. So it should be factored in for that provenance. It's a recollection. But why do we have to trust the, all the others? Okay, in 1840 and 1841, Elizabeth Mayer is the person with whom Brigham was then committing adultery. My reasons are these. We lived next door to her under the same roof. This Elizabeth Mayer had a father and a brother who were gardeners. They took their dinners as they worked along, as they worked along peace from home. After they had left for work, Brigham would step into the house. She would then lock the door, pull down the blinds and curtains, which to me was strange. He never came to see our folks, although not five steps apart. And when he left, he was always in a hurry, and she never came to the door with him when he was leaving. This same thing occurred in Nauvoo with a woman and, and Brigham. Her name was Greenow. Her son was about my age, was always driven out when Brigham came. The door was shut. The curtains were lowered. I was puzzled to know why he acted so if he had a good heart, was engaged in the business of teaching the truth. What? Why drive the boy out? Why not come also to see my mother only a few steps apart? I am now and was then satisfied that he was in adultery in Manchester, England. The seeds of polygamy were was sown and Brigham was the sower. Other extensive statements by William Marks, Mary Page, wife of LDS Apostle John Page, and Sidney Rigdon echo these previous quotes. You should read William Marks. He compares Brigham to King Noah. Five minutes? Okay, I'm going to move forward. Joseph, let me summarize a couple of these things here. It should be rem remembered Joseph tried to get things through the, the saints' heads that he says uh, they fly to pieces like glass. He started teaching sealing and adoption toward the end of his life. One of the biggest cases that help us understand what he was doing is the case of Sarah, Sarah Ann Whitney. It's the case that they used to prove he was having sex because he writes a letter. Right? He's in, he's in hiding. He writes this letter to, not to Sarah, to her parents. And he says, I want you to comfort me. Can you bring Sarah with you? And they, they use that, that to say that he's going to have her parents bring her so they can have conjugal relations with her parents there. No, he says, there's a private room. We can attend to the business. We can have the fullness of our blessings sealed upon our heads. He's in hiding. He asks them to burn the letter so that they're not discovered. He asked them to be careful uh, to not come when Emma comes. They used that to say that Joseph is trying to keep things from Emma. No, he's trying not to be discovered because they're, they're watching Emma. They're following her because he's in hiding. Well, later on, they don't come because uh, whatever events transpire, they don't, they don't come to the, the, the house that night. But on March 23, 1843, keep in mind, they had reported that Sarah had married him in, in July of 1842. He was in hiding in August of 1842. March 23, 1843, he gives this blessing. He had just started teaching about adoption and sealing. This blessing says, O Lord my God, thou that dwellest on high, bless, I beseech thee, that the one into whose hands this may fall, and crown her with a diadem of glory in the eternal worlds. O let it be sealed this day on high, that she shall come forth in the first resurrection to receive the same, and verily it shall so be 
saith the Lord, if she shall remain in the everlasting covenant to the end, and also all her father's house shall be saved in the same eternal glory. And if any of them shall wander from that fold of the Lord, they shall not perish, but shall return, saith the Lord, and shall be saved in and by repentance, be be crowned with all the fullness of the glory of the everlasting gospel. These promises I seal upon all of their heads in the name of Jesus Christ, by the law of the holy priesthood, even so. Amen. This is corroboration, possibly, of Joseph Smith III's uh, conclusion that whatever marriage or sealing was taking place, it meant nothing more than possibly those women had gone through some ceremony or covenant which they intended as an arrangement or association in the other world. There were attempts to imitate Joseph's practice. Joseph C. Kingsbury says he's sealed to Newell K. Whitney as his son. His two wives, Dorcas and Lorenzo, are sealed to Newell K. Whitney as, their, as his daughters, and they're all sealed together as a family. John D. Lee says that adoption's taking place. They're trying to do what Joseph's doing. They don't even know what, what he's doing. That practice morphs and morphs and morphs until it dies out. I was only taught about adoption in connection with baptism. If you're a convert, you're adopted into the family of Abraham. But they don't even teach that anymore. Uh, you go to LDS.org, the only mention of adoption is legal adoption of children. Before Brigham and most of the Twelve would implement polygamy as a sacrament in Utah, Mormonism, uh, in Utah Mormonism, the Lord told Joseph in May of 1831, Behold, I, the Lord, have looked upon you and have seen the abominations in the church that profess my name. Woe unto them that are deceivers and hypocrites, for thus saith the Lord, I will bring them to judgment. In September of that same year, the Lord again told Joseph, and liars and hypocrites shall be proved by them, and they who are not apostles and prophets shall be made known. These abominations were known by some after Joseph's death, but had mostly been forgotten until recently. They that were the true deceivers and hypocrites, and they who were never apostles and prophets, are being made known again today. If Joseph told the truth in his final words of his final general conference in April 7, 1844, you don't know me, you never knew my heart, no man knows my history. If he told the truth, these words take on a new meaning, and the restoration takes on a far different complexion. If Joseph told the truth, his final three recorded dreams reveal a different picture of the fate of the restoration. A dream Joseph related in early 1844, a large boat sunk by huge waves, all on board lost except Joseph and Samuel who were miraculously saved. Another dream told on the way to Carthage of a ship on fire. But Joseph, Hiram, and Samuel swim to safety. Finally, one on Joseph's final night, a dream of his old farm and a dilapidated barn which Joseph no longer wanted, leaving it to be taken over by violent, degenerate men. Perhaps his dreams are telling us something. In the end, if we can believe Joseph told the truth, we will see that he revealed, preached, and practiced a fundamentally different far more glorious and infinitely more ennobling faith than most people, especially most of those who claim to be his followers, comprehend. Yes, I admit to feeling much more comfortable with my deeply flawed anti-heroes. I may always identify far more with Batman than Superman, far more with Superman and that Apollo or Zeus, and more with them than I do with Moses, Enoch, or any of the sons of God. But why should I need those of the holy order to be flawed or guilty of great malignant sins? The ancients upon which all of the demigods and superheroes are based come with a singular purpose. As Alma explained, those priests were ordered or were ordained after the order of his son in a manner that thereby the people might know in a manner, in what manner to look forward to his son for redemption. And thus being called by this holy calling and ordained unto the high priesthood of the holy order of God, to teach his commandments unto the children of men, 
that they also might enter into his rest. Joseph fits that description perhaps better than anyone in recorded history. If we can just believe he told the truth. Thank you. And that wraps up this episode of the Still Mormon Podcast. Hopefully that was um, helpful to you to get an overview of my view, at least, of Joseph Smith in relation to the subject of polygamy. And in the next episodes, we'll begin to break that subject down piece by piece and maybe interject a little here and there on things that Joseph taught in terms of doctrine, in terms of philosophy that that are quite striking, quite different, that might add add some more illumination to the subject of polygamy in general. Also, we're, you know, we're going to not just explore this topic, just so you know, we're going to be exploring um, the Book of Abraham, Book of Mormon translation, first vision accounts. And so stick with us. This is going to be quite an interesting foray into all things Joseph Smith and the Restoration. So. Thanks for stopping by and uh, until next time.